the world is not a meritocracy and they're, you know, what I like to say is like, look, you could write an amazing book, but you're also competing against Candy Crush and high definition pornography that's available for free. <laughs> right. So there, it doesn't matter how good your book is. You're, you're not just competing against other good books. Like there is an infinite amount of competition for attention. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Hello, and how goes it, everyone? Welcome to Louder Than Words, where we provide a glimpse into the lives of some of the most innovative entrepreneurs, writers, designers, or just creators in general. And wow, am I excited today. We have Ryan Holiday here hanging out with us. Ryan started out advising many best-selling authors uh, when he was very young, authors like Tim Ferriss, uh, Tucker Max, people like this. Uh, he was also the director of marketing at American Apparel, uh, where many of his campaigns have been written about in places like Ad Age, The New York Times, Fast Company, among others. He's the author of several bestsellers, which you may have read or heard of, including Trust Me, I'm Lying, The Obstacle is the Way, and also Growth Hacker Marketing. Ryan, super pumped to have you here. Welcome, and thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, so I wanted to start here because I actually didn't know this about you until I, I recently stumbled upon a talk you gave on YouTube somewhere. Um, after your sophomore year of college, you made a pretty big you know, life decision that many people would maybe you know, further brow at. So can you talk about that decision you made after your sophomore year of college? Yeah, so it was the end of my sophomore year of, sophomore year of college. I had an internship in Los Angeles, and I'd, I was working for, for Tucker Max, who was an, uh, a blogger turned author at the time. And I, I, I moved to L.A., I lived there for the summer, and then sort of right at the end of the summer, right as I was prepping to go back to school, thinking, like, i got to finish college, and then, you know, my life starts, I got this offer from the, the, the talent manager that I worked for. It was, it was basically like, why are you going back to school? You know, this is what you're going to school for. I'm willing to hire you now. Why would you go back? And, and uh, that sort of set in motion about a week and a half later, I ended up dropping out of school. It sort of set me on the the sort of self education course that my life has been on. It, it, it you know created a, a whole slew of opportunities I never would have anticipated, and it, in in a lot of ways gave me a huge head start over sort of a lot of people who at that point were my age and had similar uh, you know similar goals. Yeah, and you likened it to to getting off one train and getting on another. You thought was moving faster and was going to take you farther. But do you think this story, I mean, surely you must get, you probably get emails about this. Is this story, do you think, ever misconstrued by a lot of people, you know, especially in creative positions that are just like, you know, you inspired me to, you know, I shouldn't go to school or I should quit school because that's not really what the message was there, right? You had, yeah, you had a path. Yeah, I mean, I one of my articles is like the first thing that you see when you Google, like, should I drop out of college or something like that? So I get like, you know, lots of emails from like 19, 20 year old kids, usually at like two in the morning. They're deeply unhappy with what college is like, which I totally relate to. But they just like want to drop out for the sake of dropping out. Like they just are not happy with school, which is very different than what I did. What I did was leave college to do something else. And it that that was the, the direct that opportunity was the direct result of work and preparation and sort of things I'd started while I was in school. So I didn't just say like, college is not for me. Let me go figure out what I'm going to do with my life. I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And I was able to begin it earlier than I think most people. So when I talk to kids, 
who are thinking about dropping out of college or thinking about quitting anything. It's like, okay, but what are you doing instead? Or what do you want to do instead? And could you not subsidize your exploration of that thing first without needing to jump off this cliff? Right. It was because once you jump, you can't go back. Like you know what I mean? It's a, it's a sort of a, a thing you do, and and that's why you want to think about this in advance rather than realizing afterwards. Like, hey, maybe that was a bit premature. Sure. Yeah. It, it, people could take a look at your career, your career arc, and be like, oh, it was very serendipitous, but it wasn't. You had things that you were already involved in, relationships that you had built, and as a result, this is why you made that decision. So that's yeah. that's an important distinction for people to 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 make sure that they get out of your story. Um, so let's talk about some of those opportunities you had. You you were involved, you know, working with a lot of best-selling authors. You know, as you just alluded to, this is why you made that decision. So how do you how did you get those jobs working for people like, you know, you know Tim Ferriss and and, and later on Tucker Max, um, uh, for those who don't know, is the massively successful author of um, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. How did you establish relationships like that at such a young age? Well, it the, it's not what it seems in retrospect, and that's why you want to be really suspicious of people's stories because there's always you know we, we tend to uh, glamorize things or we add a narrative where there wasn't one. So I I Tucker used to just have a popular website, and I wrote an article about that website my freshman year of college, and that's how he and I met, and we would email back and forth. Then he released a book, and then that book became a bestseller. And so I I met someone before they were a bestselling author. We became friends. I ended up working for him. Then, you know, his book becomes this, you know, it was, a, it was a bit of a success at first. And then over time, it became a massive success. And because of that, because I, you know, sort of accidentally gotten on this elevator, I rose to a level that, you know, was re- is relatively inconceivable for someone my age. So I met uh, Tim Ferriss through Tucker. I met Robert Greene through Tucker. You know, I got my job in Hollywood through Tucker. So it was really this sort of, you know, I took a chance on something that ended up working out much better than anyone could have conceivably anticipated. But that's what college is really a great time for. Any when you're lower level, it's like your time isn't worth anything. So you can experiment. You can you can explore these things if they don't go anywhere. Like now, if if some author that has or someone has this interesting website and they're like, hey, you know, would you come, you know, work for me for free? I'd be like, get out of here. Like my time is too valuable. I can't take chances like that. But I could then and it ended up paying off and it put me in the position ironically now where my time is valuable. Sure. It wasn't completely out of your hands. I mean, you were you prioritized relationship building and you you were putting yourself in situations where you can, you know, succeed later on. And had you not done that, you know, Tucker Max wouldn't have wouldn't have obviously happened, and you met, like you said, Tim Ferriss through that. So obviously, you prioritized relationship building at a very young age. You saw the importance in that. Yeah, well, it, I think it was. I, I think it's less about like, oh, I want to build relationships. Relationships are important. It was more like, I think I could learn from these people. I'd like to know these people. I'd like to be around these people. What is the best way for me to do that? And that that it, you know, it's it's these small steps, and like that doesn't seem. Like that doesn't seem like a big decision, but when you're 19 years old and there's parties every night and drugs and all these other fun things that you can do, the decision to say like, no, I'm going to stay in my dorm room and send these emails and read this stuff is a minor decision, but you know, can add up in a very big way. It can put into motion events that you know, totally change your life. 
very hard decision to make too at that age. Uh, talk about your, you know, landing that gig at American Apparel. You were 21 at the time. Uh, you know, it turned into obviously a very high profile job, and uh, you know, you you played a very a, ve- a very influential role in in helping to create a you know multi billion dollar brand. Um, you know, in your early 20s. So how did that how did that gig come about? And and talk about your time there, and, and sort of how that shaped uh, you know your view of of the advertising industry. Yeah, it was really it was really simple. Uh, Robert Green, uh, who I was working for, he's an author. Uh, I was his research assistant, and I was sort of doing his marketing stuff. And he happens to be, at, you know, successful people know other successful people and and have access to things. He's on the board of directors of American Apparel and was a personal advisor to the founder. And they started having problems with marketing. They they needed more than Robert could offer, just as you know, an advisor. So they said, like, you know, here's Ryan. You know, he's very cheap. Uh, he's young. He'll do whatever you want. And I came in, and i I didn't have a I didn't have a position. I didn't have a title. I just, you know, I I was sort of, I was sort of empowered to like do whatever I thought would help. And over the course of a year or so, that turned into me building a marketing department, running that marketing department, and I was there uh, for something like seven years. Um, and I I learned a bunch. I was able to make connections between other things I was working on. It's Again, it's it's these small decisions, um, these sort of chance encounters or investments that if you show up every day and you do a good job um, and you bring something to the table, you can you can sort of blow up whatever the sort of standard way of advancing through the hierarchy or paying your dues or whatever people think things are supposed to be like. Sure, it's and it is all about who you know, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't sure. know why people. I don't know why we don't want to believe that. But I mean, it is. You know, those relationships do. You know, pay dividends. Maybe not now, but who knows? Five, ten years, and it's. I mean, I mean, I think people don't like that saying because it it means like oh, whoever it implies like it implies you not doing work, and, or it implies you know what who your parents know or whatever. The way I think about it is, look, if you can provide a valuable service to a successful or influential or powerful person. And chances are that will turn out to be a a problem that is shared by multiple people. And if you can if you can do a good job, you will be passed around. And that's basically what happened to me. Is I worked with one successful person, and I learned a lot, and I became they became a mentor to me. And then they handed me to someone else, and then I kept the old relationship and added a new one. And and over time, I was building a portfolio of experience and knowledge that now allows me to sort of do my own thing. And also allows you to write books like yeah. like Trust Me, I'm Lying, which uh, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. So the thesis of this sounds pretty ugly, right? Um, and I think I think wa- the reason for that is, and it's, it's, it's probably one of my favorite books in, in the oh, marketing publishing sphere. Um, and I think... I think it dispels too what many marketers believe in that they think the internet is like this meritocracy, right? If I sure. just if I create a really good blog post or a really cool video or if I write a great book, it's it's just going to spread. If we create great content, it'll spread. How realistic is this really? Um, well, I mean, it's very real, very unrealistic. Uh, the world is not a meritocracy, and there, you know, what I like to say is like, look, you could write an amazing book, but you're also competing against Candy Crush and high definition pornography that's available for free, <laughs> right? So there, it doesn't matter how good your book is; you're you're not just competing against other good books. Like, there's an infinite amount of competition for attention, and so 
Like my theory was uh, working for Tucker and Robert and American Pharaoh was like, I always wanted to be a writer, but I knew that I didn't have experience. I didn't have anything that I could share or teach people, right? And so I thought if I lived this interesting life, I did these interesting things, eventually that would lead to some sort of opportunity to write. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, trust me, I'm lying is a sort of an expose of my experiences on the sort of the darker side of marketing, the sort of very pragmatic, realistic, you know, uh, this is what it's like behind the curtain sort of take on, on how you get attention and how you build brands uh, when you don't have, you know, multi-million dollar advertising budgets. And, and um, you know, the, the book uh, was controversial, certainly, but very few people have been able to say that it is not true. And that's, I think that's always an interesting test when, when people are upset about something or people think something is controversial. Um, what, you know, you want to zero in on is, okay, that all being said, is what the person saying accurate and real? And I, you know, I, I think the book is. And I think my favorite story, and I guess that sounds kind of strange given how, how, how it comes out, but I think my favorite story from the book, and I think it's a microcosm for the whole book, is the Tucker Max billboard. Sure. Um, can you tell that story? Because I, that fascinates me. Can you tell me, uh, tell the listeners that story about the Tucker Max billboard? Yeah. So when we were marketing Tucker's books and movies, one of the things that he and I sort of came up with really early on was, um, okay, how do you get young men to read a book or see a movie? Um, you know, when they're very skeptical, they don't, maybe they don't read a lot. Um, what, how do you make this thing attractive to them? And the thing we sort of came up with was, um, what if we got people who are not young men to tell young men that they shouldn't be allowed to? And so we ended up creating this sort of backlash and controversy and ultimately a boycott where we vandalized his own billboards. We encouraged people to boycott the movie. Um, and all this stuff. And, and it ended up having, you know, sort of the exact effect that you would expect, which is tons of attention, um, even from people who are not your target mo- audience, ultimately drives the people who are your target mo- audience to be aware of and then then try your thing out. And, you know, his, his, the movie did okay. It made about a million dollars at the box office. Um, uh, but, but you know, the, the same week his book hits number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It's gone on to sell something like two million copies. You know, what you're looking for is how does everyone else sort of spread the word about their product? And if those things aren't available to you, what can you do that's the opposite of that? Yeah, and just, just to further expand on that for our listeners, basically what he did was they, they bought a billboard for Tucker Max and, and to, promote, to promote this. And you actually, had, you actually had somebody, paid somebody to vandalize the no, billboard. No, I did it. I did it. Oh, you did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you vandalized the billboard, and then you took a picture of it, right, in like your car yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and, I drove by, and, I took pictures, and emailed it to. Did you email it yourself to to the press or? No, I just created a fake email, and then I emailed it to a bunch of people and said, "Hey, I just took this photo. Like, can you believe that this happened?" And then it wound up what? It wound up like it was uh, like it got picked up everywhere. It was like this huge big discussion, and uh, yeah. So that's like growth hacking one hundred and one. You guys. You know, didn't have the resources to buy all this print ad. So what you did was you got on the front pages and had more exposure for free, anyways. So yeah, um, yeah. It's it, the book is filled with great stories like that. So people should definitely check that out. Um, you know, that book was published in, in 2011. So how have things 2012 2012? How yeah. have things changed for better or worse since the publication of the book? Because now, like BuzzFeed, I don't think was as big then, and now that's massive. And to a degree, they manipulate 
they manipulate all of us with like this clickbait type articles, uh, you know. So, yeah. so how have things gotten better or worse since the publication of that book? Uh, well, they've gotten much, much worse. Uh, you're right. BuzzFeed didn't exist or didn't really exist. Upworthy didn't exist. I would say there's infinite more, infinitely more, you know, sort of competition for our attention. The standards by which you know, sort of journalists purport to operate have gotten lower. It's uh, it I. You know, when I was writing in two thousand, I was writing in two thousand eleven. It came out in two thousand twelve. Um, I thought things were bad when I did the sort of updated, expanded version in twenty thirteen. You know, I still thought things were bad, and then every day I wake up and it's it, you wouldn't think that it could get worse, but it does. And it's like when people hear the story, it has to be a little deflating, because from the standpoint that man, like. This guy bought a billboard, vandalized it himself, took a picture of it, and got it to basically go viral through sharing. So, like, is this what it takes? Like, so from a marketing standpoint, how how do you know from marketers or advertisers, you know, especially ones that you know are on shoestring budgets or, or startups and bootstrapping, how can they gain traction and get noticed? Does it does it take this level of sort of commitment or manipulation or it, how, is there a line I don't even know what the question is I'm trying to ask here but I, it's, sure. it's, it's deflating to a marketer in the sense that man is this really what it takes so I guess what I'm asking is what does it take to get noticed sure um, I'm not sure this is necessarily what it takes but what I'm trying to say in the book is that you know the if this is a wicked fight for attention marketing is is infinitely more complex and more corrupt than people want to want to believe. And not only not only are you competing against other products, but you're competing against the media that now sees what they do as a product, right? Everyone's after this one thing, which is my time and your time. And how do you do that? How do you break through? Um, it's it's uh, it's very intense, right? What I encourage people to do and think about is um, one to be as as independent. From this system as possible, right? You create a podcast, you have a, a loyal group of listeners. You're not dependent on the media to get your episode out each week. It goes directly to the audience. That's why you build an email list. That's why you you have your own site. But when you're out there selling a product, you got to realize, like, look, to get into the news, to get to get attention, to get coverage by these sort of third party sites, you have to appeal to this self interest. And and this self interest right now is ruled by you know a desire for 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 clickbait, for scandal, for controversy, for these sort of high valence emotions. Yeah, and I talk to a lot of products, you know, and software guys, you know, particularly younger ones, younger companies, and they're like, you know, we're just we're working hard, you know, we've scaled the product, we've focused on engineering, you know, we have this great product. Now we're just focusing on we we really want to get some press. We want to get on like TechCrunch and all these places, gizmo, like these top ten blogs on the internet type things. Uh, you know, there's there's probably a dark side to that, right? That these guys aren't seeing. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think you know. Being naive is one of the worst things that you can do here. You want to be, you you have to understand the game, and how you play it is up to you. But you got to understand the game. Sure, sure. And I think, and I think especially in the in the Tucker Max Billboard uh, story, that that kind of goes into your your growth hacker marketing sort of thesis as well. In this book that you put out, in which you you felt like. You know, you came in one day and you tell the story of, you know, when you were director of marketing at American Apparel, you came in one day and saw this article by Andrew Chen 
Growth Hacker is the new VP of marketing and you felt some level of personal disruption, right? Can you talk about that for, for a bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd sort of felt that I clawed my way to the top of this marketing heap, so to speak. I worked for a really cool company. I was young. I had a cool job. I was making good money. And yet, I look at these brands that I use every day, right? Facebook, Airbnb, Dropbox, Twitter, you know, these companies. And then you're like, there is no version of me at these companies, right? They don't need what I do. So what does this mean, right? What is next? What it what does it mean if the skills that got you to where you are are no longer what is required to grow or build a company? And then that led, you know, what these companies do instead, instead of marketing, is they focus on this idea of growth. It's what they call growth hacking. And uh, so the book is an exploration of what that means. It's sort of like me as a traditional marketer trying to understand growth hacking and try to sort of bridge the two together into a, into a mindset that can help someone who wants to succeed in this space. What is growth hacking? Growth hacking tends to be one of those buzzwords that kind of pisses people off because it's become so widespread. And it has several different meanings. And it's because I think it started as something that was, you know, that, that was very, you know, early stage startups, minimal resources. This is how we get attention. But now it's spread. Now you have enterprise level companies, you know, acting as growth hackers as well, which, you know, is, is, is supremely powerful. So what in your definition, what is growth hacking? What does that come to mean? Yeah, I sort of see it as, okay, what would marketing look like if you were inventing it right now rather than sort of evolving this 100 or 200-year-old concept to the current day? And, and you, would focus on, you, would, you would be focused on building something essentially from nothing to something, right? You are taking an idea, an app, a website, you know, a business, a, a what, an, an e-commerce play, whatever, and you're having to get your first customers. How do you do that? And how do you do it when you don't have any money and the media is as competitive as it's ever been, right? What are the ways that you get growth? And this is what a growth hacker wakes up and thinks about every day. And, and the tools that are at their disposal are much more varied than they would have been before. It's not like, oh, call it the, the local newspaper and see if they'll write about us. It, or, you know, let's buy a spot on television. It's, um, could we do something with email? Could we partner on this platform? Could we, you know... Um, do this crazy thing, you know, could we work at this conference? There's all these different tools. And that a growth hacker's job at the end of the day is, is, is not tool dependent, it's outcome dependent. And the outcome required is rapid growth, rapid self-sustaining, scalable growth. And if you can accomplish that, I think you can call yourself a growth hacker. It doesn't matter what company you work at or what industry you're in. So wouldn't that qualify that Tucker Max billboard situation? Wasn't, wasn't that a form of growth hacking? I mean, I like, suppose, like you said, the, the film brought in uh, a, a million dollars in the box somewhere, a few million. Sure. Um, so outcome, I guess, depending on the outcome that that the, uh, Tucker and and the production company was looking for, would be dependent on whether that was successful growth hacking or not. But it does remind me of like I think you use this as an example in the book, the Airbnb example. You know, using Craigslist early. I mean, they yeah. they, they weren't. You know, they were using someone else's platform to build their own, which they did very successfully. Um, and I think you know, the only qualification I would make is that it, it's somewhat hard to track what this actually accomplished. Right? You can see like it got tons of press, but we don't. You don't know. Like, what if it was going to sell a million tickets just because that's how many fans he had? I think one of the things I like about growth hacking is a little bit different than what I do day in and day out. Is that it's very metric driven. It's very and miserable. Van- yeah. Yeah. So creating a billboard then vandalizing it, then getting media attention. You have no ability to actually track what that accomplished. Although I, 
it's not hard to sort of do some, you know, back of the envelope math. Yeah, maybe there's some opportunity there for some innovation. If some techie or app guys listening, you know, make that measurable. Make the make the outdoor uh, marketing measurable. Yeah. Um, so you know, with all things considered, right? You have you have this this new. Well, it's not new anymore, but this approach to marketing that's very uh, uh, you know data centric, uh, measurable. Um, you know, you, you have the media, which is, which has always been manipulated, um, as you, you know, talk about very candidly in your book. Um, so what, you know, this is a really turbulent environment. I mean, we have a lot of tools at our disposal. It's never been easier, uh, you know, to, to develop your own platform. Like you just alluded to before, I can create this podcast. I can create my own site. I can create my own blog. I don't, I don't necessarily need the media, but like, so all these things are good. But it is a very turbulent ecosystem, right, for the market. Sure. So what is the role or what is the main function of a CMO nowadays? Like what is, what is the CMO, um, you know, at, a, at an American apparel or, you know, a HubSpot or a Salesforce or any of these bigger companies? Like what is their main function now? Like how do they yeah. survive I mean, in this that, ecosystem? Their job is to, to, to figure out what the story of the company is and to successfully communicate that story across mediums and platforms, and to do it in a way that actually produces leads and, and customers. And so, you know, uh, whereas a marketer maybe previously was just, um, you know, involved in, you know, getting attention or whatever, I also sort of expand that division now to say, like, look, if, if your job is to tell a story of a company and your own products don't successfully tell that story, or, or are in, if your customers like look at Zappos, right? Zappos tells a story in their branding and their marketing. Now, but if the customer experience is is not consonant with that story, then you have a problem. And I, I see an, a sort of expanded role of a marketer in sort of fixing those inconsistencies and adding to it. So, um, you know, I, I think a marketer's job at the end of the day is to grow the company, right? That's the fucking job. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that, um, what exactly are you doing marketing for? Exactly. And, and how did like the, how do kids coming right out of school, like how do they tap into this, this train of thought? Because, you know, another problem with, with, you know, the higher education and the university systems up on the Hill is they're, they're not teaching really what's being practiced or what consumers um, are behaving like they're, yeah. it's not aligned. Um, so like marketers coming right out of school, 22, 23 years old, how do they tap into this train of thought that allowed you or, or, or sparked you to be like, let's try this billboard idea or how, how can we get uh, traction yeah. uh, with minimal resources? How do they tap into this, this growth hacking, whatever you want to call it, train of thought? Yeah, look, you, you learn by doing and you learn from people who are doing. And so I think the good news is um, it's never been cheaper to do your own thing. It's never been cheaper to experiment. It's never been cheaper to sort of learn and try and experiment on your own. It's you've also never had as much access to information, to you know, smart mentors, to successful people. Um, you've got to make yourself available to all this stuff, and then you've got to try and learn. and And eventually, the opportunities will come. I think if you're so focused on where, what am I going to do first? What's my starting thing? You're thinking about it wrong. It's what do what do I what have I learned? What can I do? What do I what value do I bring to the table? And once you've done that, um, you know you're going to find that there's plenty of of sort of stuff to go around. 
and that's about as, as as good a place to leave off as any. Uh, Ryan, where can where can people check you? I mean, obviously you have you have you have three great books that everyone should be checking out. But where can people read more about you online and, and sort of uh, reach out to you? Yeah, yeah. So my website's uh, ryanholiday.net. I have a reading list where I recommend books every month that I always encourage people to check out. And then um, uh, I'm Ryan Holiday on Twitter, and then my books are all available on Amazon. What are you reading right now? Anything we can steal from you right now? Uh, no, nothing good. <laughs> Ryan, I really appreciate you coming to hang out, man. You, awesome. You're a wealth of knowledge, so I appreciate the few minutes here. Um, and for, for everyone else listening, uh, thanks for tuning in to Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you like us, rate us, share us, and um, come back because we will see you very shortly. Bye.